And we are back. Thank you so much for joining us for yet another phenomenal discussion for my favorite part of the show, getting into the interview. And uh, really excited to have this guest on with us today. He's been on before, but I want to have him back on because he's got a very unique perspective. Um, he, he spends as much time looking at the financial and economic side of things as he does the cultural and societal side of things. And if you guys have been listening to me for any extended period of time, you know that that intersection uh, is fascinating to me. And I think that this guest is uniquely suited and positioned to, to, to speak to those intersections and hopefully provide some clarity to you. And also for me, this is one of those guests I have on because I want to use him as a sounding board and, and, and pick his brain as well. So without further ado, I want to introduce Dimitri Kafinas from Hidden Forces uh, Dimitri, thanks so much for joining us, man. It's great to have you back on the show. Thanks, Zach. It's great having you on. It's great being on your show. I, the first time I was on was uh, the middle of March during the pandemic, in the first week or so. That's right. That's crazy right. Days. Man, um, and they've been crazy days for a while. And it just see the the amplitude, right, just continues to ratchet up. Which is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on. And and <clears throat> as we frame this conversation, and just just is a warning to everybody, including you, Dimitri, it's going to be fairly wide ranging because this was one of those conversations. Usually when I have a guest on, I know you can sympathize with this. There's the bullet points of things that you've got to hit, right? They're the things that you're determined to get to um, with you. <laughs> those things, it, it started getting way too expansive. So the editing of the, of the, of the topics that I wanted to discuss, that was, that was very difficult, but, but where I'd like to start this conversation and and I'll uh, full uh, full disclosure. The reason I want to start it here is because listening to you talk about how you got into this world is just oddly reminiscent uh, of my voyage that I've taken. That I'm still trying to digest myself and trying to figure out, you know, what's formed the way I look at things. And listening to you talk again. Um, it, it just it reminds me so much of of my own journey that, that again I'm still unpacking, um, and so I I wanted to get back I wanted to just start from the beginning so the audience knows a little bit more about you before we really dive into the depths here, um, you know w where you went to college what you studied and then you had a you had a fascinating to me a, a very violent jump from being a college student to on TV hosting a show. And and you were extraordinarily young doing that. So I want to kind of lay out that process and, and lead us to what, you know, how you got here, how you are the guy that we're sitting here talking to today. Sure. I think like a lot of people, I went to college without a clear idea of what I wanted to do, or maybe actually what I had was I had the wrong idea of what I wanted to do. It wasn't very clear, but I thought I'll probably just going to do this thing, this template thing, which was basically go to medical school. I'm Greek. My dad's Greek. Everyone in my family is a, a doctor. <laughs> my dad's a doctor. Everyone in my family is a doctor. So I was like, I'll just be a doctor. And uh, I didn't like it. And uh, I had a difficult time accepting that I didn't like it and I wasn't good at it. And then I decided that I would be a psychiatrist, maybe a, maybe a psychiatrist or a psychologist or something like that since, uh, since all the, the other medical stuff didn't interest me. But this is proximate it's close enough and uh and then i realized i didn't like that either 
And there are all sorts of reasons I didn't like that. But I remember thinking this is a kind of a bullshit profession because <laughs> these are really there's really no controls in all these different studies that are that are happening at the university and subjects are putting whatever they want onto the surveys. And I don't know how any of this stuff is reliable. So, of course, I end up in economics. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I go from this exact science to this total, you know, um, woo woo PS physics envy social science of economics. And uh, and I ended up majoring in both economics and political science. And uh, what I've actually, political science is what I enjoyed the most. Uh, economics was complementary to political science. And I remember when I was taking a foreign policy course, my junior year, I had, that was my bet, my favorite course in political science the entire time that I was in university. And the the professor, actually at the very beginning of the class, like it was like the first, one of the first classes, he explained to us how interest rates move inversely to bond prices and why that's the case. And I just thought that was so, um, so interesting. And it was one of the first times that I really gained an appreciation for the importance of economics in politics and how they go hand in hand. Which is oftentimes why, which is why I so often talk about political economy mm-hmm. as a as a term on the show. So I, I did that. I I majored in a bunch of things, and I studied a bunch of other things in college. I, I took a lot of classes actually. I front loaded. I audited classes, and I took some summer classes. So I graduated with more than enough. I had a. I also had a minor in psychology. Um, and I thought that I was going to go work either at a think tank. Because again, I was really into political science. I watched tons of C-SPAN, which I've talked about on the show. Or I was going to go work for some, some non, some either governmental or uh, intergovernmental organization. And point of fact, I was studying French so that I could go work in Brussels at the Commission. And I actually applied and was accepted to that position, if memory serves. And I ended up turning it down because I got an opportunity to work in Italy. And I had I had studied abroad in Italy for a semester in my junior year, the summer, the spring of junior year, with absolutely no like intention originally to do that. I just accepted it. A bunch of my friends were going to Italy, so I was like, oh, I might as well go. And I just loved it. I, mean, I loved it so much. And I, when I got back to New York, I was studying French to go to, to, to go to Brussels and I was auditing Italian and I was, ha- and I w- had a tutor on the side. And if I'm not mistaken, I was also going to this place called the French Institute or something, taking additional Italian courses with no concept of what I was going to do with it. And then all of a sudden this opportunity to work in, um, in Italy came, came across my my desk, so to speak. I think I saw it pinned on a board at the language, one of the language centers. And I went through all the whole interview process process over the phone and they accepted me. And so I went and I worked in Italy for a year, which was an amazing experience. We'll go, won't go into that. It was totally relevant to my career, but wonderful experience. And I came back, worked for three months at a bank, which was in the internal audit department of a bank that was tidying itself up to be sold to Santander, which ended up happening. I didn't like that. That was the whole churning sort of industry of the mortgage refinancing and securitization that, you know, sausage meat grinder thing that we are all very familiar with now and the consequences of it. 
And I started a company with a friend of mine in the video game industry. And we did that for about two years. And that was an amazing experience. We went broke, basically. But um, it was it was awesome. I learned a lot of things. We got I got to meet the CEO of Sony PlayStation, got to deal with Sony to develop our product on the PS3. And I learned a lot of uh, things about the 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 technical challenges of working, trying to develop a uh, in this case it was a middleware product for the PlayStation Three that would have allowed you to bet on yourself in a video game. Oh wow! And and yeah, well, this was so you'll remember that I don't know when you graduated. I graduated in two thousand four. I was two thousand so, from college or high school. College. Yeah, so I graduated high school 2000, college technically. I, We're the I, same. Okay, yeah. I yeah. graduated high school 2000, college 2004, and all of my friends were making so much money working in investment banking at Lehman, at Goldman, at JP Morgan, et cetera. And they were all kind of doing the same thing, making a lot of money. I, I don't remember now how much it was, but it was over $100,000. And that was a lot then. Hey, hey, that was back when that was some actual money, man. And that was actual money <laughs> out of college for twenty-two-year-old right. kid. Right. They all had blackberries. Uh, they were proud to be working themselves to death. Mm-hmm. And they all got home, played party poker, played video games, smoked weed, <laughs> and that was kind of and partied. <laughs> yeah. And we just had this this uh, idea of well, why don't we combine all three of these things? I mean, the weed wasn't explicitly part of the product. Uh, you know, it wasn't a part of the product at all, but, uh, you know, there's that it was, it, it, it was such a common part of the culture. And, but like, why is it that people are playing party poker and, uh, spending so much time and energy doing this? What is it about that? And why can't they do that with video games? Mm-hmm. So we went through a whole process. We got legal opinions that we presented to Sony when we met with their chief legal. And like, like I said, we got a developer's license. We were at the game developers conference in 2007, which was an amazing experience. So that was a whole amazing experience. And then I used that experience and the knowledge I accumulated doing that to transition to a position in strategic product development at Cablevision, which was which is a a, a small, relative small MSO based if you compare it to Time Warner or or um what's it called? Some of the other big ones, but it was like top five mm-hmm. MSOs in the country, cable companies with a really integrated footprint and a high net worth uh, base. So you could actually experiment a, lo- a lot at Cablevision, whereas you couldn't at some of these other MSOs that had wider footprints and mm-hmm. bigger bases, because what ended up happening is you had uh, you, you the thing with um, without going down this rabbit hole. Now, the thing with developing on a set top box is that you're constrained, not just by, the hardware, which is not as constraining on other, let's say on a phone or on a computer, which has much more horsepower, but also you're constrained by the life cycles of the equipment. There, mm. You have tons, you have tons of different pieces of equipment that are out in the field that have different, that have been out there at different stages in their life cycle, and you have to write software that's good for all of those boxes. Mm. And so you're really, you're really constrained on what you can do. So. Um, but because it was cable vision and there was there was just some, some more there was more flexibility there. But I don't know that that's the reason that Wilt set up the the department. But there was a strategic development department. And I went there and I and I I had that experience. It wasn't for me, but it was a, it was an awesome experience. And then I was diagnosed with a brain tumor, and that's what shifted the next phase of my life, which is what led me to leave cable vision six months later. And 
transform my blogging into a radio show on 91.5 WNYE, which then turned into a television show less than six months later wow. or less, less than not. So nine months later, it turned into a TV show, but I accepted the position basically six months later. And I was on TV within a few months of doing the TV of the radio show. And I'd never done radio or TV before that. So literally being thrown into the deep end of the pool. Totally. And you know, that, that happened because I, I, for, you know, for, for lack of a better word, I manifested it. Right. Right. So that, so that was very intentional then. It was something that you were focused on. The radio show wasn't the radio show was, I was pulled by my ears and my nose and everything against my will to do it. (laughs) Uh, I was so passionate about, I was really passionate about markets and what was going on in markets at the time and trying to understand it, explain it to, to other people and politics and all this kind of current affairs stuff that I'm already, I'm interested in now. I was interested in then. And there was a, a person who ran a big gym in Queens who had a contact at a radio station. And I would talk to her about all this stuff just on the side. I had no idea that she had a contact or anything like that. And she's like, why don't you do this on radio? I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I don't know anything about radio. And so so basically she set it up and I was very nervous about doing it, but I plunged ahead because I knew that I was incentivized to really just say yes to everything at that point mm-hmm. because of the brain tumor diagnosis. So uh, I did that and uh, I took to it like a fish takes the water. It was very natural. I was just good at it. And once that happened, that changed my life. I'd never found anything before that that I was naturally good at in mm-hmm. that way. And then that led to capital account, right? So the radio was radio first, then capital account came next. Yeah, well, I, I got on TV <clears throat> as a commentator person. Actually, what I really was doing was I was I was reporting. I mean, what really did it for me was reporting from Greece. Mm. I was in Greece for a wedding and I got interviewed on Max Kaiser's show on RT. Do you remember that guy, Max Kaiser? Yeah. Oh yeah. Still, yeah. Still has a show. Yeah. And, uh, and so that was, so that, that was also a really interesting time because it, you'll, you might recall, you might remember this, like blogs really started around 2006. Before that you had the newsletter industry that was, that evolved from being snail mail to being email. Mm-hmm. And the guys over at uh, Agora financial were really pioneers in moving from snail to email from my, from what I remember. And then you had the blogosphere really came online in 2006. You had zero hedge. I don't know when they came. I think they were 2007. You had Politico, you had uh talking points memo. Those guys ended up getting scattered and going, starting their own things. I mean, that's how Ezra Klein got at the New York times. He was a blogger, you know? Oh, so really? The, I didn't know that. Yeah. The, the, I mean, the blogosphere was really, a, a a a seed a seeding of much much of what came later, and then you, what you ended up getting was you got RT. I think in two thousand eight they launched. You had uh, Al Jazeera. You had which I think was earlier. Al Jazeera was much earlier. Uh, you had um, but their online presence with YouTube. Or YouTube transformed everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's crazy, dude, to remember that you and I went to college before there was YouTube. Before there was really Facebook. I mean, Facebook was 2004, I think, really hit the campuses. Yeah, MySpace was still the thing, right? I wasn't even on that shit. Neither was I. (laughs) Yeah, and 
before Wi-Fi, pretty much. I mean, yeah. like I didn't really have Wi-Fi. No, I didn't either. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember being so excited when I moved into the dorm because of the Ethernet. Like you were like, man, this is going light speed. You know totally. what I mean? Yeah. Totally. Totally. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's when file sharing in Napster was huge. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And uh, you know, yeah. it's it's amazing, man. And you know, there I, I've referenced this now a few times. There was an appearance of that um Quentin Tarantino made on Joe Rogan's podcast that really spoke to my heart. because uh, he's a Gen Xer, but he was there was this moment where he, he just talked about uh, what uh, they were just talking about cultural connection. I don't remember how it came up, but he talked about how growing up as a kid in the 1970s, there were all these cart, there were the cartoons in the morning that really dug and like the TV shows they used to watch and stuff. And there's something really beautiful about speaking with people who are really at your exact age. Right. You know, right. We, we all grew up with the same references. Like I tell my wife this stuff. We laugh about it. I recently remembered something I, I used to I remember how as a kid, I used to be like, good riddance to bad rubbish. Now, I don't know where I learned that, but I know I got that from some movie or TV show. Mm-hmm. And there was lots of stuff like that. Um, you know, we had like Steve Urkel as like middle schoolers. And so um, to, to go back to before my I rambled off, um, YouTube was really seeded the next phase of that revolution of the blogosphere because it took it went digital mm-hmm. the sorry the video went digital and you had all of these news these foreign news organizations and it makes sense that they were foreign they weren't independent startups why because only foreign governments can afford to get into the video space or could at that time you did have current tv which was a, a startup attempt by al gore's people like al gore and his network i forgot about that one yep it was uh you had a few of these kind of early starts that um that were again just like a lot of these companies, they're early. They see the trend, but they're very early, and they don't really have an organic. Uh, they're not really meeting an organic demand. They're rather seeing these interesting technologies coming together, and they want to create a combinatorial product that mm-hmm. doesn't speak to any particular market. So there were all these different uh, governments getting involved. Iran had press TV, and there was this moment where all of those things were perfectly in place. Uh, and the spark that lit it, I think, was a combination of the 2008 uh, Democratic primary with Barack Obama leading the charge and really captivating the United States and a lot of foreigners mm-hmm. who were looking for something different after eight years of George Bush. The and the and I would also say the progressive ecosystem, the progressive media ecosystem, really on a political on the political front really led the charge uh, politically for content online. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where all the interesting conversations were that I was following at the time. And Democracy Now! also had a lot of stuff that went online, to, to, to be fair. They also did a lot of stuff, but they were they were on Pacifica Radio Network like for a long time. But you had this, but you, and also the 2008 financial crisis, right? These two things were huge. And to go back to Max Kaiser, Max Kaiser was on RT, and RT at the time was really doing – I saw them as a countercultural avant-garde type network. And they were really uh, – they were one of the only platforms where you could really say stuff that you didn't hear anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And so if you watching fi- the financial media cover the 2008 financial crisis, they didn't have a lot of credibility. 
right? So, um, so that, of course, the lack of credibility in the mainstream opened the door for these alternative outlets to come in and fill the gap. And that's why RT's uh, whole shtick at the time was question more. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we can talk about RT. I, I'm happy to talk about RT and Press TV and Al Jazeera. And well, not so much Al Jazeera, but I can, I can, I'm happy to talk about what I, I really think of what now that I'm older and I understand more. I mean, in no way am I, am I under the impression somehow that RT was this, uh, this truth-seeking organization. It's it's an organization that's very much focused on disrupting American um, American power, influencing American opinion, but not pushing a, a specific propaganda story, but rather trying to make Americans question everything, question their lived reality in order to seed discord in the country. And this is something that I explored in my episode with Peter Pomerosev on, um, on Hidden Forces. And I highly recommend both of his books uh i'm blanking now on his the first the first name i'll tell you it's somewhere on my shelf here uh nothing is true no that's a different one um one of them is called this is not propaganda and i can't remember the first one that he wrote which is so good so so good um and uh so anyway i got on kaiser's show kaiser was like a a, a phenom at the time really just blowing up the internet with his appearances on all these shows. And you really had this sense that something subversive was going on. You had this sense that you were, you were, you, you, the window had opened because of, you know, the internet, et cetera. And you could see behind the curtain, you could see the real truth. Of course, that wasn't exactly true. But so I was on Kaiser's show to talk about a blog post that I'd written that went viral on Zero Hedge. Again, these were the pathways. You wanted to get on Zero Hedge. If you got on Zero Hedge, you got out there. Your your subscription model could could make you money. You could get followers on Twitter. Twitter was happening at the time, and so I got on Kaiser, and then RT saw me on Kaiser, and and so did uh, some other networks, and I got invited to start speaking on TV when I was back in Greece, uh, or right or right after. Short, no, sorry. So shortly thereafter, I was I was in Greece for a wedding, couple a week a week after the interview with Kaiser, or right after that, I got invited to start doing lives. On inside of Athens, Athens uh, Plaza Hotel, which is one of the three hotels on Constitution Square, which is the central square in front of Parliament in Greece, and I just lit it up, man. I mean, I just was so aligned with what I was doing. I didn't give two shits about having a career in media. I didn't care. I was very naive and very um, what's the term I'm looking for? I had a very simplistic framework in my head i didn't understand the world as well as i thought like you know classic example of uh, dunning kruger effect yeah yeah exactly and you just enough to be really dangerous which is why rt rt loved me i was really compelling on camera i i i blew up i know that i i knew later afterwards i after getting my the, the creating a show at rt i'd i'd learned about what was going on at the station they had my feet everywhere and they were like who is this guy and I even got an invitation to show up on uh, CNBC Europe. I could have swore it was Squawk Box Europe. Hmm. I can't remember what it was, but I got that invite right as I accepted the RT thing, and I was already flying back. I'd have to search, dig up the email, but I remember being like, man, that sucks. <laughs> like, I would have loved to go on there, but knowing who I am, knowing who I was then, I probably would have said some crazy shit. Like, I was saying crazy <laughs> shit on there. I was calling the bailouts of Greece a leveraged buyout of a sovereign country. 
And I was saying, I used to, I was talking about all this kind of stuff. And the camera guys were like, yeah, like give it, you know, like, and these were all Greek guys, the, the stingers, the local, the contractors they were using. So, um, so it was just amazing, man. Like I was, it was an amazing experience. And uh, I remember I got paid a lot for these appearances. Oh, really? Like, I, oh yeah. I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to say what number it was. Cause I don't know for sure. I had this number in my head that I was getting like 600 euros for five minutes. Wow. And that was 600 euros was more than $600 at the time. That's what I have in my head. That's what I remember somehow. And that was a lot of money just dropping like that. So I yeah. thought like that was going to be what I was going to get paid for my TV show, but it was the opposite. Like <laughs> I got so underpaid and I worked my ass off, but I was fine with it. Cause here was this opportunity to create a TV show from scratch with zero experience. So what are, I ended up getting to Washington DC uh, and uh, <laughs> man, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy with my life today. No doubt. Uh, and I know everyone to go back to something like that. You know what I mean? But like, and you know this from your own experience, you're a successful guy. There are periods in our lives where we can either say yes to adventure, we can say yes to the challenge, we can say, yes, I will jump from this plane, Mm -hmm. or we can say no and walk away, and nothing is sadder than people who have chosen no, or who consistently choose to turn away from the things that scare them. You can see that they have chosen not to live, and that's the worst type of life, and I, I, it's a tragedy, and I, I, there. They, I'm reminded those poor, timid souls that know neither the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat, right? The, the exactly. man in the arena. Yeah. Absolutely the truth. So um, I uh, I got I got to D.C. and didn't even know where to live. I didn't have a place to live, you know, because I, I had actually moved from New York where I was living. After well, I had well, I had my radio show. After the interview with on Kaiser, I was like, there's an opportunity here in Greece. So I moved to Greece. I'm Greek, and I was very comfortable moving to Greece, and I would do as I wanted to. So I sold everything and went to Greece. And then here's this opportunity happens to me, and I had just sold all my shit, and I was living in Greece. <laughs> and I was like, I can't turn this down opportunity. So now I leave Greece, and I go to Washington, D.C. So I show up in Washington with nothing. I didn't even have an apartment. So I had to sublet apartments for three days at a, at a time. I eventually found this place for a month that I subletted, and I was at that place or, you know, in a subletted apartment with subletted furniture and watching CNN, CNBC, Fox, MSNBC, everything, everything. Aaron Burnett's program, which had just launched at the time, trying to see how I'm going to do the show with no idea. <laughs> Absolutely no idea. And when I started the show, everyone was up my ass. No one had faith in me. I don't think anyone had faith. I really don't think any, I'm trying to think now, like, I don't think anyone I worked with had faith with me, had faith in me. And it was a small team of people. Uh, cause, cause they're like, who is this guy? You think you're just gonna, cause I also had, I had a really, um, confident attitude, man. Like I just walked in there. Like I owned the place. I was like, yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I'm going to make a TV show. That's right. Yeah. And yeah. everyone was telling me how it's got to be done. You know, the the guy who ran the network or the, the RT America was like, you know, he's, his idol was Roger Ailes, and he wanted me to do it like Roger Ailes. I was like, nah, I'm not going to do that. No thanks. You want me to go over there? You want me to go over there where there is Fox and there is CNBC? You want me to go there and die? No. Guess what? I'm going to go over there where there's yeah. nobody over there, okay? And I'm going to build something, and I'm going to start selling, okay? And we're going we're gonna to do okay. Because they didn't see. They didn't grow up in the blogosphere. They didn't understand that there was this huge market on Zero Hedge and all these other 
financial newsletters, pop, 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 pop. All of this was written word. They had no video exposure. They had none of that. So I was like, what am I going to do? First of all, I'm going to build a product for me. I was like, there are all these people out there that I want to interview. And I want to bring them on my show. And I want to get these voices out. And I know not just that other people want to see these people, but these people have ex- have distribution pipelines, bro. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So like that was what that's what happened basically. And I um I remember like it took some time for them to believe me and to see it because you couldn't lie with them. You couldn't argue with the numbers. Mm-hmm. Like we were we became the by far, if I remember correctly, on RT America, the most popular program very quickly. And internationally, we were extremely popular, too. So we were right up there, their top program. Um, and that was, you know, and I drove that the wheels off that that train, that bus, whatever, right until the end, right where I developed really massive tumors, uh, symptoms from my brain tumor. So it was the medical situation that that effectively pulled the no, no, on no. The TV well, show. no, it it happened it happened at the same time. I don't. Uh, it must have just been completely coincidental. I was under enormous stress that that happened in a especially because of changes that happened at the network that could have accelerated the dementia. Possibly, I was living a really unhealthy life. I literally did nothing but work. I worked three. I, I slept for like three, five to three hours a day, and I walked to work and back in a suit and shoes, which was stupid, but I did it. And I remember I would walk past every morning past the white house and it was this amazing experience. And I just, I was like, I'm just going to live every day here. Mm -hmm. I was like, there's nothing else I want to do. I don't want to go to these parties. I don't care about DC. I don't care. I don't care. I'm like doing this TV show. It's incredible. This is what an incredible opportunity. And then the the guy who ran the network who really liked me was left to go do something else. And his replacement was this total apparatchik like disgusting, um, like serve, servant of the of the Kremlin, so to speak, and uh, just a and a completely. It was just he just didn't have he had no he had nothing. Like he was someone that looked like he really felt like someone that had just been appointed. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's what I also also learned working for RT. I don't know how reflective this is of other Russian organizations. I presume it's very reflective of organizations that have some kind of Kremlin funding. They put loyalty above everything else, not mm-hmm. competence. And he was so incompetent and he was just a real asshole. And he stripped me of my title like very early on. He gave it to himself, made himself <laughs> the executive producer of my show. And uh, he would stare me down in the hallways. It's really psychotic shit. And it was really, it was really awful because here I, I was so passionate about this thing that I created and that I loved so much and that I poured my heart and soul into and that so many people had invested in me and I felt um, responsible to them and responsible to my audience. And uh, I, at the same time, I realized I was like, I got to get out of here. I can't do this. Like I can't, I can't be here. This is just not going to work. And, um, and so I, I worked really hard behind the scenes to take care of the host of the show, Lauren Lister to help her get out of there. And she ended up transitioning to Yahoo Finance when we ended the show. And that was kind of the main thing for me. I I would have ended it early, but I really wanted to make sure that she had the opportunity to really move to where she wanted to go because that was also a thing that, you know, for for me, doing the show was actually like everything that mattered to me. But for other people at RT, understandably, these were people that were journalists, real journalists with degrees that wanted to do this in their career and they were doing, they were taking this opportunity to work there 
you know, understandably. And then they were hoping to transition somewhere else. So it wasn't a thing necessarily where other members of the team wanted to stay at RT. You know, I I knew there was no other place that I could do that. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we eventually ended the show. And uh, by the time we got to New York, that's when I really, my real symptoms uh, hit. And the, I really, I couldn't work uh, for the entire six months or so from when clear symptoms came on when I ended the pot, the, sh- the TV show to when I got brain surgery. Okay. So <clears throat> the, the medical condition throws up a, a, a whole nother thing. And, and we spoke about it a little bit the last time you were on, but one of the things that I hear come through and I don't want to speak for you. So feel free to edit anything that I'm saying, but one of the things I hear come through your work when listening to your podcast and, and one of the things that I identified with, it, it seemed at some point during this process, there was maybe for lack of a better term, a realization that spawned disillusionment with the system, right? A, a realization that it wasn't, and maybe it was a little bit further down the path because I, I remember, uh, again, I wasn't on a TV show or, or a radio show at that point, but I remember that at that same point going through the the financial crisis getting to that point where I had a basic understanding of what was going on and was way too overconfident in my read about that. But that experience sent me down a path that's led me here where I am today. But, but the thing that I wanted to talk about, one of the things I had on my notes was disillusionment. It, 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 do you think that's a fair? And when I say disillusionment, disillusionment at the system, disillusionment at totally the state of financial finance, the state of politics. What spawned that? Where 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 did that come from? Yeah. And again, being the same age, you know that shared experience. Just I, I wanted to hear where that came from in your journey. Did you hear my episode on Alex Jones? Yes, I did actually. Yep, yep. So I don't know if you had the experience of like watching any of his content during this period where yeah. you kind of were disillusioned. Funny enough, the, listening to your episode on Alex Jones, I, I that's when I DM'd you right after I got done listening to it and said, uh, okay, I got to have right. you back on again. Yeah. Okay. So a lot of people uh, didn't really understand where I was coming from on that episode. They uh, One of the things they didn't understand, for example, was my what I said about Alex being endearing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree you know, with the, you, by the way. I, I I I had the exact same impression. Yeah, yeah. So I um, they call it now red pilling, and I got <laughs> yeah. I got quote red pilled. Uh, I think it was around the time of watching Peter Joseph's Zeitgeist. Did you ever watch that on YouTube? Yep, yep. I mean, that was wild. You want yeah. to talk about someone with a limited understanding coming into knowledge that fit perfectly, right? It explained it. It explains so much. It's like, oh, that's how they control us. Right. Right. You know, like um, I knew enough about the monetary system uh, to enough, but I didn't know enough to uh, be able to understand what was wrong with that that picture. Um, if you remember, the Peter Joseph Zeitgeist was a three part documentary online, pure. I mean, it was the equivalent of. Blair Witch Project mm-hmm. for movies, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Pure bootleg, uh, put together just brilliantly, cine- like this brilliant kind of cinematography for the the time, and it had it was a three legged stool of mon- of the of the central banking monetary system, religion, 
and I believe war. Uh, and the, the and, systems, of- and that bootlegged feel to it seemed seemed to add credibility. You know what I mean? It, Absolutely. I mean, that's the other heuristic, right? That, um, and I don't want to, I don't want to suggest, I don't know, I don't want to suggest any kind of intentions on Peter's part. You know, I think it's 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 important to also note that so many of us that spread misinformation do so because we believe it. Right. Right. You know, it's like that's the most effective. Uh, you know, agent of misinformation to someone who believes it, which is why RT hired me, right? They hired me because I was so passionately against the system and understood the system to be corrupt and, but didn't have a good, didn't have the the, the level of understanding that I have now to work constructively to try to fix it. Right. Right. Um, And that's the thing that, 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 you know, they, 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 RT seeks, uh, not just revolutionaries, but like, you know, arsonists, <laughs> you know, you know, people burn that want to burn it the fuck down. Yeah. 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 And, and that's why I'm so viscerally against that kind of attitude, which I see so often on Twitter. And a lot of people on Twitter don't understand that. I, you know, I, I know that a lot of people on Twitter who I interface with or folks in this space who, who have views like this. I just think we come from, I've been there, done that. I'm mm-hmm. done. I'm not interested, you know? Um, I just want—I want to play a constructive role, man. I'm not—I'm not, I'm not interested in just dunking, freelance dunking on people, and uh, scoring points and and gaining followers. I want—I want—I want something more than that. You know yeah, what I mean? yeah, substance. And and I'm with you. I think that that is, <clears throat> at least in my progression, that that urge to dunk and that urge to be inflammatory and outrageous. Um. It, the the line that comes to my mind whenever I see that today is, hey, you got to live here too, right? And and nobody wants to be king of a Mad Max, uh, Mad Max kingdom. You know what I mean? Like um, taking that step back and realizing that, hey, you know, we, we, we're all a part of this, whether we like it or not. So let's try to make it for the better. Um, getting back to that disillusionment, w- was yours centered more around the political machinations that, that, no. that occurred. It no, was it was financial. the financial crisis. Yeah. Yes. It was a, it was, it was, it was all the blatant lies, right? All the, 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 the larceny of the federal government on the part of moneyed interests that were working hand in glove. I mean, yeah. that's still, that's, that was true then. And I, it remains true today in my mind, so to speak, like that is not one of those things that I had a misunderstanding of. Right. That absolutely was, a land grab. It just wasn't part of this, you know, new world order plot, you know, with people twirling mustaches, you know, and all that additional, you know, color commentary. But it was very much people that that owned the government were like, we're not going to let shit get too out of control here because yeah. our money's on the line and we own so much of this thing and we've got so much power that we're going to exercise it. And because the other thing about finance that's unique, it comes with a lot of mumbo jumbo jargon. Mm-hmm. That intimidates people. Yeah. Po- politicians don't have that avenue to create to uh, make the public think that this is too complicated for them to understand. But with finance, it absolutely is. Which is why you'll hear they they you know these guys. That, it's what one of the reasons I remember. This is actually a quick detour, but I've been helping my mother in law get out of a jam with her uh, retirement portfolio because of, of someone that was managing it who didn't have her best interest in mind, and. 
he 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 actually actively traded the portfolio because that's how they got paid off trading fees, which is insane oh, for a retirement portfolio. Yeah. And uh, when I got I got on the phone with him with her on the phone one time, and he started spinning his bullshit, and he started using basis points to reconvert what she said. I was like, and I re and then I reconverted it back to him. And I kind of pu- pulled all the bullshit out, and he was just kind of s- sitting there, kind of he couldn't say anything. But yeah. like simple things like that, just basis points as, as opposed to percentage, you know, like to to literally people get their, their eyes glaze over. Like, what's a basis point? Yeah, I don't even know what a basis point is. Um, so, so I I, I remember, um, just being incensed by that and understanding that there was a fraud going on and getting plugged into a stream of information that helped me begin to make sense of it well enough that I understood that it was bullshit. So that was what disillusioned me. And I realized, because I had been reading um, some newsletters, some Austrian economists, and one in particular uh, heading into the crisis, who did this phenomenal job of like, not just, quote, predicting it, like laying out what's happening in the economy that's going to lead to a financial crisis. Right. Who was it? Do you remember who it was? Yeah, I I, I never like using his name because I always mispronounce it. His name was Kurt Reichenbacher or Reichenbaker. Sounds he died familiar. right before the financial crisis. Mm. I think yep. he died in 2007. I had his newsletter. It was provided by the Daily Reckoning, by the Agora Financial. Mm-hmm. And it, he was awesome. It's it's funny you bring up the the jargon we talk about that on the show all the time and and I know that it hit, and I don't care at all. I know that it has hindered uh let me let me try to think of the right phrase here. It has hindered my acceptance and more of the mainstream as far as the way that if you listen to our show, if you're used to listening to that, I think our show comes off as somewhat sophomoric, right? Because we're not using that. But I've said to the listeners from the very beginning, you're not stupid. You're not dumb. Right. They're just talking in code that you don't understand. Totally. Right. And and my job is to be a filter on this and break it down in terms that you understand, because these concepts are not too big. The other funny thing you realize, and, and I'm sure you'd agree with this, a lot of the majority of the time, at least in my experience, the people who have the largest platform, the people who are seen the most often on these programs and these shows and all, once you know the jargon and what you listen to them and realize that they don't have an authentic thought in their entire body. Right. Mm. And and they never did. And that they're just speaking the party line. Right. And you sit there, for instance, one of the interesting things about being a guy that actually manages money, and this is true in the Twitter sphere, and I'm not trying to call anybody out, but it's true in the Twitter sphere. It's true in the media. Um, the guys that get represented or the guys that hold themselves out to be the ultimate experts are usually the absolute worst at managing money. Me and my partner have a, a like a pastime of of going through and reading their their. Uh, we don't do it all the time, but listen to this guy hold himself up as an expert. Go back and go read through his ADV at, at Finra and start looking into him. You know, we've had these guys with you know five hundred thousand followers. We dig into their ADV and they manage five million bucks. You know what I mean? It's a joke. It's it's hilarious. And yet they hold them in it literally. The more they prop themselves up, the more likely they are to be a complete charlatan. And and one of the things that you said that resonated with me that we've said recently was, look, I think the word charlatan gets a bad rap. A lot of these people are truly charlatans in the sense that they believe what they're saying. They just don't know what they're talking about. 
right? Well, um, there's that. There's that too. Yeah. I mean, it's some combination. Yeah. It's some combination. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you if you have to if you have to if you have to constantly uh, readjust your thesis to not readjust your th- readjust reality to fit your bias on a regular basis so that you you somehow seem consistent over time. Right. You know you're doing that. You're just yeah. finding a way to justify it to yourself. Right, right. Okay, so looking back at the one of the things that I wanted to dig into too, especially in this conversation with you again due to the age similarities. You and I seem to have a different interpretation, and I'm looking at it through the financial lens because I've never done anything other than just be in the financial world. Um, You and I seem to have a different interpretation of those events. One of the things I've noticed, and I noticed at the time that was striking to me, is I was sitting there watching this larceny unfold in front of us, and I was appalled. I was also uh, blown away by it. I, I was the red-blooded American 100%. kid that grew up wrapped in the American flag, believed it was the you know the best game going. We're the good guys, and just sat appalled by watching what what I what I was seeing unfold. And one of the other things that I found striking at that moment in time, and I wanted to get your opinion on this, and I think it's still true today. For for whatever reason, the baby boom generation or or the elders at that time, right, the elder statesmen at that time in the industry. They didn't seem to really grasp what was going on, or they didn't seem to grasp it in the same way you and I did. They weren't as disillusioned. They mm-hmm. treated it like more like this was run of the mill. And they're like, oh, well, you haven't been here before. And I remember looking at them and going, nobody's been here before. This is unprecedented. And yet you're acting like as if it's just another bump along the road. Mm-hmm. A, did you notice that? And B, can you provide any clarity to that? Because when it comes to that topic, I still cannot figure out why that is. Yeah. Um, so uh, first of all, I just want to be very clear. Like I, I was extremely disillusioned and just to put a, a pin on the uh, cap on that. I mentioned the Austrian economist because I understood well enough and was not surprised by the economic downturn. Yep. But I was shocked by the response of the government. Right. I had in my, in my head, this is not allowed. These, there are rules. Right. And I learned after that, the importance of power. This is power underlies everything. This isn't NOM, man. There are rules, right? (laughs) Exactly. Um, And uh, so to answer your specific question, I think that the bottom line is that this is how all systems of corruption work. They work hierarchically so that the people at the very top reap the the outsized benefits, but they create an army of complicit soldiers. The reality is that if you are of a certain age, you've worked a certain amount of years, you have your money in the stock market and 401k, blah, 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 you don't want that shit to go down. Yeah. So if the government's saying we're aligned with your interests, your portfolio's interests, like I think that at least that my, my I don't know if you had the experience of segregating people that were invested in the stock market with people who weren't. And it was, you know, like really tried to see the difference between those two groups. But the people that I were I was dealing with were mainly people that were invested, and so they just wanted to see their portfolio do well. They right. weren't like, "Oh, this is burning all the fuck down," mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, they, that's a really interesting. It's a really interesting and simple explanation because I was sitting there, and I've said it before. I actually had some really good returns during that period of time because I was in the mega bear camp, right, with, with, with a very limited understanding. Uh, 
you know, the and I tell people from the end of 07 to the bottom of 09, I was up like 22 percent. But the reason I was up that much is just because I was I was long treasuries. I didn't even know enough to short the banks at that point. I just thought the whole thing was coming down. Um, and my attitude at the point, looking at those older people who were cheering on the Fed, a part of my disillusionment was, wait a second, we, you're, you're cheering because they're breaking rules to bail you out. If you were any good at your job, why didn't you take preemptive actions, right? What, what, why, the, to me, it was supposed to be this level playing field where we're all dealing with the same stuff. And if you get it wrong, you get it wrong, right? That's what separates the the men from the boys, for lack of a better term. Um and they were all incentivized to just ride with it, right? Just to bail them out. Um, and w- watching that play on, there's probably less of it now. But but it seems like that detachment still exists. You know, now I'm sitting here and, you know, I manage much more money than on average than than the guys that I was talking about at that time. And I still don't feel that way. Right. I, I, I still my perspective is still very much the same as it was now. Right? Not my perspective. I mean, I've learned a ton and grown a lot since then. But my approach is still the same, meaning, you know, I don't want government picking winners. I just want the playing field to be equal. And yet and I see so many people like that of our age that, that feel similarly. And yet that older generation still seems to have this. Uh, need for a benevolent dictator, for lack of a better term, right? This belief in the system that it's still not as screwed up as it is. What, what do you think gives, A, do you agree with that? Uh, and uh, guys, there's obviously exceptions to all rules, and I'm not trying to cover everything with a w- with a broad brush here. But why do you think in an era where I feel as though those between the ages of 55 to 65 should be speaking out the loudest about what's going on. They tend not to be. It tends to be guys more our age uh, or Gen Xers that 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 feel uh, the freedom, uh, the liberty to go out there and and call it like they see it. What, what, what? How do you explain that separation? Is it just kind of the same kind of the same a derivative off of the 08 disconnect, or is there something different going on? So I don't know. If I necessarily, if your experience necessarily resonates with mine today, I don't know that I, I feel like I'm surrounded by people that all acknowledge that the system is deeply corrupt. Yeah. So I, I also was reflecting on what it was like, what, what it was like around that period. And I do actually agree that there was a huge contingent of Americans who, for me, that this experience was really connected with the Iraq war. were really like, just like ears, fingers in the ears like hands over their eyes, just not willing to accept or look at anything for what it was. And I don't feel like those people either are in my life anymore or that they really exist anymore. Mm. Cause I feel like our senses were so brutally assaulted as a result of both the Iraq war and the 2008 financial crisis. And I've been saying this for so long and there's always a risk of um, becoming so wedded to this thing where you close yourself off to other realities but I, I feel and I continue to feel that that everything stems from the, those two experiences. The world that we have today, the disillusionment on the part of, of so many Americans stems from what they learned about our country and about the power structures in the course of those years. So I, I guess what I would point to, and, and I'll be the first to admit, 
that I do not know what's going to happen in markets. And I tell our listeners all the time, guys, the only guy that you should completely write off is the guy that is selling you certainty, right? He is the only one that for sure does not know what's going to happen, right? So in no way do I know. But I look at commentary today. I look at... um you know, the media, financial media. And I listen to so many of these 55 to 65 year olds come on and say, hey, look, it's not that bad. We're still bullish. We're looking for a bounce back to the end of the year. Look, if you have an ounce of economic literacy, it, it doesn't take Milton Friedman to look at the current setup and go, this is really bad. This is nasty. It's not 08. I'm not saying we're going to a great depression, but so many things that the world has been, the financial world has been built on, right? So many of those foundational things have been either obliterated or cracked as it relates to uh, the way the world has worked for the last 30 or 40 years um, in particular. And listening to these people's bullishness. And again, it's, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to come across like I'm disagreeing with them about trajectories of markets. So I'm calling them into question. Th there still seems to be a shred of, or, or may, maybe even larger than a shred of faith in this system that is somehow going to miraculously, you know, see them through in some way or another. And, and you know, again, I, I, I don't want to bake it all down to directions of markets, but if you're looking at the current setup and you don't see some real troubling things, I, I, it leaves me to scratch my head and go, what is it that you're looking at? What are you paying attention to? And again, it, it's not, and I, it's not a bull bear debate, right? Do, do you understand what I'm, do you, well, yeah, look, you what I, yeah, yeah. So I would also draw a distinction between market prices and market dynamics and the underlying economy, because I've been humbled <laughs> over the last uh, decade uh, uh, when it comes to just how much disconnect there is between the two. Mm -hmm. So, and it's a complex system, as Mike Green has taught me so well. The um, just the role of passive, as an example, has has had a structurally buoyant impact on stock prices. Mm -hmm that let's say more simplistic models would simply account for through greater liquidity, lower cost of capital. Um, hey, and just, just I, I don't mean to interrupt you. I want you to stay on that thought, but I, Mike could talk about this so much better than I could. Or me. But, yeah, but one of the interesting things, we actually have been pretty much net short the vast majority of the year. And uh, late last week, Wednesday or Thursday, we pulled back on our hedges more than we had at any other time. And one of the reasons we did was because Friday was the 30 Friday was I think Friday was the 30th of the month. And then Monday was going to be the second uh, or something like that. That makes sense. And we sat there and thought, you know, there's a really good shot. Volumes were dropping. And our, our attitude, you're about ready to see some passive flows coming through on 401k mm -hmm. accounts. And then boom, right? And I'm not saying one one is the other. I'm not saying because mm -hmm. it worked out the way we thought it was right. Maybe it was something else. But mm -hmm. you have to sit back and acknowledge that, right? That this tidal wave of money yeah. via the system, right, is is flowing through anyway. I yeah. just No, so but like 100%. Look, man, we've got two big issues here. One, we have a, a global economy. Well, let's let's try to let's try to sketch this out. So 
the the western the western economic bloc for you know the western global democratic capital order capitalist order has been around in this form pretty much since the end of the well, end of world war 2 when the, when the cold war ended you had a bunch of people hundreds of millions of people enter that that workforce and you had you integrated a whole part of the of the world that had basically been knocked offline mm-hmm. kind of what happened in with east germany and, and and west germany but like for the whole world but one big difference was it wasn't we weren't all together the same people living under the same government we had the sweatshops and then we had the parts of the world that had the capital that were able to take advantage of all that cheap labor so like we reorganized the global economy along these lines and this whole world was built on at the foundation american hegemony the primacy of american empire and the american military and american international american led international institutions and those things are coming apart and as those as this system comes apart it changes fundamentally so much of what can and can't work and like when we look at all the we would look at how important debt is to the to the um to the global economy i mean michael howe writes about this so well like that financial markets have become and central banks have become these refinancing mechanisms they're not there to finance new constructions new investments they're there to keep the status quo in place mm-hmm. right and so like what we're what to talk about setups you can't look at that understand that and then see all this capital getting choked off and think to yourself like this is not going to have that the the effect of that this is going to have is pretty much what we've seen already how can that be how can that be you know when we've raised interest rates so fast you know from such a low base to where they are now now you have that right the financial part of this equation and then you add to that let's put aside like structural energy stuff right investments and and costs of inputs and let's just look at the geopolitical equation you know because i've been saying this again and i'm not when it comes to this framing i don't feel i don't have the confidence in this framing that i have in the confidence of the 2008 financial crisis and nine and and 2003 invasion of iraq are the twin twin sources of where we got today but I continue to feel like everything everything remains in place for this to be true, which is that the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, for me, was the beginning of World War III. And I use that term, I guess, partly to, to stimulate some awareness on the part of the listener. I don't just mean it. I don't just mean it to be alarmist or to wake you up because it's also kind of true. Like when you look at how World War One started, when you look at previous periods or World War Two, like no, none of these huge global conflicts started like that. They became world wars, right? They became world wars over time, and so it seems to me that we we are in this process of moving from a from one particular global order led by America, where no one else could even think to compete. See, that's the important thing. American hegemony was about full spectrum dominance. It was about having so much overwhelming force that no one would even think to try and compete with you on all levels, right? On Socially, all levels. culturally, financially, yeah. 
Absolutely. But foundationally and militarily, because right. all that other shit doesn't matter. Right. All that stuff is peripheral. It supports. But without the structure of military power, nothing else matters. To go back to 2008, you know, within the the, the context of of that particular paradigm where military power wasn't relevant, what really mattered there? What mattered there was money. You know, who who had control over the government? It didn't matter what the rules were. It didn't matter what the conventions were or what the media said or what people thought was okay. What mattered was who had who had the power to change the rules and they would change them in order to protect their wealth, right? So same thing here. What matters is power. Mm-hmm. What matters is who has the power, right? And you see what's happening now. Why are we getting military threats from Russia? Because they're powerless, because mm-hmm. they're weak. All those people that were apo- making apolog- or apologizing on behalf of Putin for invading Ukraine and constantly trying to find some ways to justify that and and to suggest that he's the strategic genius and that he's playing 3D chess. The rest of us are just stupid. We're wrong. Vladimir Putin is extremely weak and he's extremely dangerous as a result. Agreed. And his overt nuclear threats come from that place of weakness. So he's militarily weak. Now, he has nuclear weapons, which is what makes him dangerous. The United States, why did OPEC decide to cut oil production by 2 million barrels? Because we're not as powerful or relevant to their security as we used to be, which for me, I always, I never could understand this. I mean, I, I knew the whole shale patch thing was going on back in the day. And I was like, so I was aware of that. I was aware that oil prices had gone down significantly. But I didn't understand why we had developed so much overt hostility towards the Saudis. Like, I, I'm not saying they didn't deserve it on a moral level, right? Like, they deserved it back with what we learned about their involvement in the 9-11 attacks, okay? So that wasn't the issue. The question was, why are we antagonizing? And this this went on during the pandemic period too, right? All those books on MBS came out. Um, there was a whole cottage industry focused on like really just like raking the Saudis over the coals for all their human rights violations. Well, you guys knew that shit. There's nothing new about that. But why are you doing this to to work to this huge, hugely important oil producer? Like, do you just think that you're never going to need their support ever again? So that's where we found ourselves. And all all of that, all of these different coalitions are changing because America's role in the world is changing. And it's changing because America's power projection capabilities are changing. And with that means that, uh, again, all the things that we're talking about. So the geopolitical risks are real. They're just very difficult to handicap. And I don't I don't know. I mean, that's I, I, I it's a long winded way of saying I agree with you. I don't know what to do about it. I, uh, as, as a personal investor, I have been in cash, significantly in cash from the summer and fall of 2001, uh, 2001, yes. And I made some investments, about 10% of my portfolio that I added additional positions in energy through ETFs and um, ETFs. In the summer, this summer in June, the middle of June, I added some positions through a mutual fund, which Daniel Paris manages, Federated Hermes, which is a, a which uh, is a dividend fund and some individual securities again in energy specifically in oil and oil pipeline infrastructure and stuff. So like, I don't, I know I'm not a sophisticated investor. Like I do the best I can. I get advice from people that know a lot more than me. And I have a macro framework that I think is pretty good. And I try to use that to help guide me. 
but I don't know, you know, I, I'm not really, I'm not sophisticated enough to try and play counter rallies. So for me, it's like, yes, I saw a lot of people talking about how we could be, this could be a good setup for, for a, a, a bear market rally. I don't want to mess up with any of that stuff. I'm just trying to find a good opportunity to buy uh, for the long term because I do think we're in a stagflationary paradigm. Mm-hmm. Mike Green doesn't agree with that, for example, and that he could be totally right. But I tend to think that all of these um, unfunded liabilities of the government are going to become a source of deficit spending or impetus for deficit spending. I think mil- the military is going to need additional investments. We're going to need to make investments in energy infrastructure. Like there's going to be a lot of places where the government's going to have to spend money. And I just think, I think we're going to ha- be in that kind of a paradigm. So I don't want to be, I don't want to be in cash indefinitely, you know? Yeah, no, I'm with you. Um, our, our portfolios aren't that far off. Uh, you know, our, our main net exposure is on very similar things. Um, we, we may like 60%, pr- I'm like 60% cash across everything that includes mm. any kind of illiquid asset as well. Everything. My liquid portfolio is much more cash as a percentage, right? So like I'm very bearish and yeah. I'm, I, I'm, yeah. And I, I don't know that that's because my disposition is bearish. I'm just super I, fucking bearish. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I, but this is getting to what I was talking about earlier. I don't think it's because you're super bearish. I think, and I was trying to explain this to our clients without inducing panic, you know, because I was like, hey, guys, I, I don't think that we're on the edge. Uh, well, let me let me restate that. Um, I think that the economic from where I'm looking at, if you combine the economic, political and cultural backdrop, I think the setup is as bad as we've seen in a very, very, very long time, meaning that not that the outcome is certain, it never is. But the pieces are in place for really bad outcomes right now. There still has to be several moves, and and, and nobody knows exactly what those moves will be. Uh, you know, I started this off by saying I I don't know what's going to happen. Nobody does, but but I think to take a super bearish posture at this point is sort of like just sticking your head out the window and saying it's raining. I mean, it doesn't look good. Um, you know, based on you said the you know the the deglobalization of the world. The look at the currency movements. Looking, for instance, I mean, we get into rates, right? Just thinking about rates. How in the world can you think you can run for a decade and a half at zero percent interest rates? And 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 the thing about markets, I don't think people really realize or grasp, is that markets adopt things. Markets. Um, you know, it, it, it reminds me of like a catheter, for lack of a better term, or an IV, where your body will begin to grow around it, right? The, 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 mm-hmm. It starts yeah, incorporating totally. that outside, add that outside influence as part of the system, right? Zero uh, percent mm-hmm. interest rates. I mean, you're getting at the very heart of it. If you think you can run it like that for 15 years and then just jack it out of nowhere without there being tremendous second and third order effects down the road, I – yeah, I mean, you know, I Mike Green used a great metaphor. He talked about it using going fishing with dynamite, yeah. whale hunting with dynamite, <laughs> whale hunting with dynamite. Yeah. Yeah. By very... the time the whales start popping up, they're going to keep are... popping up. You can stop throwing dynamite. There's a bunch more whales that are going to come your way. Right. Right. Well, and it kind the of lag like, effects. Yeah. And I think that's a great analogy of 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 what the Fed is currently doing. And I, you look, I am not going to be the one to sit out there 
and and go after the Fed for raising rates because I've been lobbying for them to do that for the better part of a decade, right? Um, mm-hmm. But I just look at the confidence and the, um, you know, the determination and the speed at which they're raising these rates. And I want to look at them and say, hey, guys, by the time you see the effects you're looking for, you, you, A, you're only going to be probably 20 or 30 percent of the way there in terms of, you know, the rest of the damage you're going to see. Which is just another, I mean, that's a whole, we could do a whole nother show on that. Just looking at the, you know, the Fed driving via the rear view mirror. I mean, they're bound to make these mistakes if you understand the way that they look at the world. Um, when we, when we look at a geopolitical, the, the other thing is that I wanted to talk to you with about, or, or talk to you, talk with you about was the political implications, especially as it relates to um, how, again how radical things have gotten how loud the how loud the tales if you will of each yeah. of each party have gotten um I, I see a direct correlation to 08 even if people even if that's not what it's attributed to right to me mm-hmm. that was the beginning of the pulling of the thread well you, the iraq war probably was the beginning of the pulling of yeah. the thread and then 0809 certainly exacerbated it and sped that process up but what is fascinating to me is how there is such a great, uh, such a large contingency in the culture today mm-hmm. that 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 recognize in some way, shape, or form the overreach and the amount of really unrivaled control that is in the hands of so few, and and look at the negative outcomes of that setup, and then their answer to their their answer is just to choose another dictator. Right. So we we don't like this di- dictator. We want to depose them, but we just want to insert another strong man into his place. And, and in my opinion, a strong man or, or a dictator that's even more uh, dangerous. Right. The limiting of free speech, uh, giving granting, you know, unconstitutional powers to the to the government. Um, how do you explain it, it? Do you think that that's just an offshoot of of the general, if if, if I can coin a term, gen, generational disillusionment, or or is this just the progression of a society, you know, getting or or a culture becoming sclerotic and outdated? You know, I don't know. I, I'm sure I I would be I would be surprised if there aren't people who can speak to this very competently. Um. In other words, people that study why that's uh, that study the mechanics of democracies and why they, let's say, experience these types of issues. How many of these issues are cyclical? How many of them are not? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I I feel like intuitively, it's got something to do with the plumbing of the system, and by the plumbing, I mean. Absolutely, something's got it. Something has to do with money, right? Like America's so the distribution of wealth is so much more um, fat-tailed today than it was at any point when I was growing up. Man, like I don't. This is actually an interesting thing, right? Like just from a experience point of view. Like when I was a kid growing up, like what what was it? What did it mean to be rich? Like you could like go and you could be in a limo. Remember, like, um, I mean, you you you'd be like at like the Hyatt Hotel, right? You know, like you drove you you flew first class. Your parents had a Grand Wagoneer, rather than a station wagon. Yeah, or or like you know, or like or like a Mercedes Benz, like that. You were really rich, balling. Um, just think about how far we've gone today. Where now it's just like private jets, 
um, you know, like the 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 performance cars are out of this world in terms of horsepower, performance, everything. So like we 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 we're in a world where more money and more capital has been allocated towards creating a world for the very wealthy. And that just I don't think works. Like you have to have a better distribution of wealth in society so that more people feel invested in the in the future of the country. Because if they don't feel invested, they check out, which is why it's one of the reasons that the founders wanted people to be property owners as a con- as a condition for voting, because mm-hmm. they didn't want to see in the Americas what happened in some of the European capitals. But like France is a perfect example where people felt like they didn't know anything. And you had this, you know, crazy revolution in, in the late nineteenth the late eighteenth century in France. So I think you know the fact that people don't feel like they own the they have a place they have a stake in the country makes them check out of the process and you know want to see it burn down and then other people who are also so wealthy that they're disconnected they're 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 so wealthy that they don't really have to depend on government programs or the even the police department for their security can also check out they can also not give a shit and they can basically live action role play on Twitter and, you know, just kind of not give a shit about all these other things. Um, I'm amazed at how many people support. This is now a different contingent, but there are a lot of people that support a kind of Singapore like model or a Chinese model, because for them, that's going to protect their money. You know, and it's more and we had, efficient. There were similar. There were similar things. Yeah. And there were similar things during the. Lead up to World War II, people that were that supported the Nazi fascism in Nazi Germany, and fa- especially fascism in in Italy, were industrialists who liked the system because it protected monopoly, and it put the capitalists first and foremost, right, and turned them into non-capitalists. You know, whatever right. else you want to call it, and that's probably isn't that where we are now? Like one hundred percent. Yeah. So. You know, and yet these a lot of these politicians still talk about small business owners and stuff. Like, <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a so people people like I don't know. Um, the thing that the, I think that you know to bring this to a a practical sort of constructive point, I think the question is what can we do about this, right? Mm. So like, um, what is there to be done? I, I I don't know. I don't have a quick answer, but I will say that I try on, in my own little world to identify people that I think. Actually care about our country, that want to see it succeed. That maybe, if you put a cookie in front of them, I if you put a tax cut in front of them, they're going to say yes to the tax cut. But they deep down know maybe that there are other things that are more important. Like I'm a perfect example of that. Like I don't want you to raise my taxes, okay? And I don't think that that's necessarily the solution. But like I'm actually at a place in my life where I want the common good more than I want something that's that's for myself, even though. I don't trust you, right? So mm-hmm. I'm not going to be I'm not going to be okay with that process. I'm going to I'm going to have a problem with it. But I'm willing to be open for it because I know that what we're, the path we're currently on doesn't work. Yeah. And so I'm willing to to put my heart out there and try something, right? Yeah. I'm 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 reticent. I'm guarded. Yep. I'm untrusting, but I know that this way leads to the abyss. So I'll, I want to go in a different direction, and I want to find people that are doing that. They don't necessarily, you know, when it comes to geopolitics, for example, 
A good example is someone like Elbridge Colby, who I've had on the show. He has a very specific thesis on Taiwan and what U.S. defense spending should be doing, what the United States should be doing to to, um, strengthen American defense in in the Pacific, to defend Taiwan, et cetera. There are other people that could disagree with that thesis who could also come from a good place. I would have both of those people on. And generally speaking, I try to have – I don't – care as much what your view is, as long as you arrived at it in good faith, because Mm -hmm. I do think that if we're all working good faith, we can solve this problem. (laughs) I think a major problem is that there are a lot of people out there who are operating in bad faith. Agreed. Agreed. Or, or assumed bad faith, right? Like one of the, one of the, there are a lot of people acting with bad faith. One of the other cultural issues that, that, and I know I'm not the first person to talk about this, but when your political opponents become cultural and ideological opponents in terms of we're good and they're bad. Yeah. It is impossible then to, to, to span that gap. Right. When, when it's, when it's, when we don't look at each other anymore and say, okay, the reason you disagree with me is because you have different ideas about how we're going to get to the same place. Right. There's for so long in our country, Pretty much everybody was heading in the same direction. We might have political differences on how to get there, but we wanted a safe environment for our children. We wanted good schools, right? We didn't disagree on the aim. We disagreed on the way we get there. Yeah. Now, there really isn't anything we agree on, right? Now, before we go down that rabbit hole, there were two things that I wanted to get your perspective on in closing before we run out of time here. Um. You had a really interesting, I still haven't had a chance to listen to it, but you did a recent show on the dollar. And then also before we get into that, I wanted to ask you about your perspective on what's happened recently in the pipe, considering the Nord Stream pipelines. Uh, I had, I had Doomberg on last week. We discussed uh, the pipelines quite a bit. And to me, it was one of those things that, that while it got news, I was, I wasn't shocked anymore, I guess, but I'm shocked at how little news uh, and how little reaction there actually was, because to get to your point about, you know, a beginning of World War Three with Ukraine and Russia, I saw that as a decided, you know, decidedly another step in that direction. Mm-hmm. Right now, infrastructure was being attacked. A, when it, I, I hate to speculate, and we're somewhat forced to do it on this topic. But when I look at this situation, to me, I really feel like there are only two players that could be responsible for it either us or the United States, or excuse me, us or or Russia. Um, Maybe that's misguided. It's very possible that I'm wrong. How do you see that? What what, what do you think the implications of that were? And and how did you interpret it? When that news came across to you, what did it mean to you? Yeah, so like, let's let's compare the examples to like conspiracies for 9-11. So do I think that the United States government, um, in it's the institutional government, plotted 9-11? No. Do I think it's possible that rogue interests working in conjunction with the Saudi government that wanted to take the United States to war and had a particular agenda um, conspired to facilitate that somehow, to to enable it somehow? Possible. And as we know, based on the words, I've done an episode on this with Bob Carey, who was a member of the 9-11 Commission, who said this was a conspiracy that went all the way to the top of the Saudi government. Why did they not tell us that hmm. when they were when they were okay? So, um, I think actually, so I think when it comes to the U.S. 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 Europe side, is it possible that interests, let's say, uh, people, various 
members of like cov- like uh, covert intelligence communities in Germany and the United States did this because they were worried that the German public was going to cave over the winter? Possible. That wasn't my immediate instinct, though. My immediate instinct, actually, I wouldn't call it an instinct. My immediate feeling was just, if I had to guess, I would guess that it was the Russians that did it. And that was my immediate thought. Yeah, and I think it was, and I, and my thought was, again, kind of burning the bridge. There's that the the concern that he's losing control of his situation politically in in Russia, and so he wants to to make it less valuable for anyone trying to take anyone trying to you know concoct a palace coup that they have less to negotiate with when they get into the position. Because if they got, if they took over the government and they have the pipelines, they can say, we can turn the pipelines back on. Right. Right. As part of their negotiation platform, there's less to gain from becoming president of Russia. If the pipelines are shut down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't, you know, I don't know. Um, I think there's also one of the other things I'd heard, which makes a little bit of sense is it's just another way for him to try and signal. Like he's the guy, he's the fucking guy, right? He's, he's, He's again the, the point. People that were saying that Putin is a strategic genius, that we're all going to freeze to death, that he's going to, um, that that his move is he's playing three D chess. He's going to take over Ukraine. Blah 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 blah. By the way, I didn't know, right? I didn't. I, I my attitude with this stuff is like I wa- I was much more cautious. Even though we did an episode late last year on this, saying with Dmitry Alperovich, where he made the case for why they were going to invade Ukraine. Um. He is in a position now where he's very weak and very scared and very afraid and vulnerable. And so maybe he he did it because he wanted to send a signal again, a safe area where he attacked European infrastructure, but it was Russian European infrastructure. To, to say like, and it was non-operative, to say, you fuck with me, I will bomb Nordic infrastructure. Right. Um. Same thing with kind of like let's say if he does any kind of if he does if he tries to signal new any kind of inco- upcoming nuclear tests like so I, that's my best guess but it it could absolutely have been it could absolutely be some kind of deep dark fucking deep state shit you know yeah totally yeah. possible and and it's it's from what we've seen over the last you know twenty years. Um, we have a we have a joke at our firm, and I say it on the show all the time. I'm not a conspiracy theorist because conspiracies don't pay well. Um, <laughs> but they actually, that, do well if if you're involved in them, right? Um, but if you're involved in covering them, yeah, if you're involved in covering in them, the media, exactly. conspiracies go a long way in in our world. Yeah, they get get you a lot of followers, a lot of listeners. Sure. Yep. Um, but looking at it, I, I, it, it's one of those situations where there is there there's so many different angles and so many different possibilities. I think it's again we're left to speculate. But yeah. now we had another question too. I don't remember. Yeah, yeah. When we've got short time here, the dollar. Um, it, I've been one of those guys pushing back against the the imminent collapse of the dollar crowd uh, for the last several years. Um, which was actually a direct product of my disillusionment coming out of 0809, uh, expecting hyperinflation to kick in, being completely We're in the same away. camp. We're yeah, same when camp. it didn't. And I went down that road, got into the dollar. Do you think 
I, I look at the world today, and and I think that the, a logical conclusion is that we're heading rapidly toward another Plaza Accord. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I don't. I I I I don't feel confident enough to make that specific. Um, that specific prediction. Because I think there's we're, we're in a world today where that the the cooperation for a Plaza Accord, if we're going to use that that analogy, doesn't exist. I think we're on the path towards um, World War Three, and mm-hmm. I think I think uh, the danger is because we have nuclear weapons that could quickly become like uh, World War Three equals like nuclear Armageddon. I uh, and because of that, it's the path forward is much more uncertain. If we didn't have nuclear weapons, I would just say like, hold on to your hats because we're going to be grinding it down. Um, and uh, I, I so I I don't know, man. I I don't know. You know, that's my answer. I, I'm I'm very I don't worry about it because like what am I gonna do? And uh and I've been down this road in my personal life, you know, my brain tumor. So I know this is like there's no this is it, you know? Yeah. So like just I'm not gonna sit here and worry about when I'm gonna die and how the world's gonna come to an end or whatever, you know? Right. Um yeah. although I will say that like me dying personally uh in a normal way is obviously like not does not compare to like these horrific images that have been put in our heads around nuclear armageddon and what it means to to lose parts of the world to destroy ourselves that's another thing it's not just uh, it's not a meteorite hitting the earth it's something where like we were not good custodians yeah so and we um i don't know man i i don't have a lot of faith in our government to be honest you know i, I never <laughs> i i i had huge issues with how the democratic party concocted this whole Russian conspiracy. I was very much against it. At the same time, I've also been very much against the whole fucking stupid contingent of people on the right that have led this whole like uh, apology tour for Putin. Yeah. You know, and this this equivocating thing of like, oh America, because we did a bunch of fucking bad things, we're equivalent to right. the Chinese Communist Party. Right. Or to or to Putin's Russia. Right. Like, dude, we had the we're, we were the fucking boss. Yeah. We were the global hegemon. Like we didn't do things perfectly. We got a little out of control. We started some wars in the Middle East. I got it. I was yeah. against those wars. Yep. I understand. That's right. But we were an empire. We were probably the least malicious empire ever. In history. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Like grow the fuck up. Yeah. And get on the train. Either get on the fucking constructive train or get out of the room. Yeah. Don't waste the this is where the adults are with families and friends and communities who want to build something. We're not interested in your bullshit. So, like, you know, that's where I'm at right now. It's like, yeah, I couldn't stand with the Democrats. We're doing all their bullshit. And uh, now this this whatever right-wing cabal of fucking people who have amassed, you know, and are basically just like tear it all down. I'm, I don't want on board with their shit either, you know? No, no, I know. And, it, and it's... Uh... It, that's been a really bizarre offshoot to watch this this Putin apologist tour and and you know trying to draw correlations between us and these other decidedly in my opinion uh evil uh regimes with malintent and yeah and I, and, I, and I also want to say I just want to say this too it's very easy to be like oh they're tra- they're traitors or oh they um they're they have these malicious motivations or whatever I think it's more 
I think it's actually not those things. I think it's a combination of factors. I think some of it's self-interest. You know, a lot of these people in media that push these things because there's an, so there's an element of financial alignment. There's also just an element of disillusionment, like mm-hmm. you and I have been through, mm-hmm. and just an unwillingness to grow up around this, in my opinion. Yeah. And like be, be, being like, you know, doing the, the the necessary work of being like, I gotta just close that chapter in my life. Like that's done. <laughs> Let's you know that's over. That we gotta move on. Yeah, we gotta move yeah. on. Yeah. Well, hey, pal, I've kept you too long. I appreciate you coming on. And I hope the listeners got as much out of this as I did. Again, uh, guys, it, it, it's and I'm not I'm not blowing smoke. Uh, it's the only podcast service I subscribe to hidden forces dot io. Uh, and it's at hidden forces on Twitter, right? Well, so the best way you guys can follow me, we have an at Hidden Forces pod account on Twitter, but it's mainly at this point my personal account that I use, which is at Cofinus. Right. And you can learn more about, you can check out our episode library at hiddenforces.io, and you can subscribe to one of our three content tiers on hiddenforces.io slash subscribe, where we just launched our new genius community tier, which I'm very excited about. We haven't had a chance to talk about it, but um, besides all the things that a lot of other um, communities try and do, though we don't use Slack or Discord. We actually use a a, a platform called Circle, a purpose-built for this, um, which is a whole other conversation. Um, we hold these live Q&A calls. So some of these are with regular contributors and researchers who just come on on a regular basis and share their research and take audience questions. Guys like Michael Howe, Rory Johnston, uh, Eric Bismagian. You might know these folks. Eric is uh, an economic analyst. Rory is an analyst of the oil market, soon to be adding natural gas. And Michael Howell is a brilliant uh, researcher and analyst of global uh, capital flows. Um, so those those are regular contributors. We're growing that list. And then we also have people that come on who are really great guests, uh, speakers who come on because of how because of the reputation of the show and the goodwill and everything. And they share an hour of their time, like Nick Timoreos, mm-hmm. who is, who is uh, the Wall Street Journal reporter, is going to come on for an hour in a couple of weeks to just to speak to our listeners in private over zoom and take questions. So these are at uh, Jim Grant's coming on also. So this is, um, it's a really, it's a really cool thing. And, uh, it, it allows me to do something with a podcast that you're able to do with your radio show, which is take listener questions mm-hmm. if you mm-hmm. want to. And, and this is something that people I haven't seen done anywhere else. And it's a, it's a new offering that we haven't fully announced yet on the podcast, but people can sign up if they're interested. And one of the things I get out of it is it's one of the very few places that you can listen to very high level discussions with high level guests um, where you are just getting the facts and you're not getting the spin uh, from either side. And so I just really appreciate it. I'm a huge fan of your work and I can't uh, can't be a big enough advocate for it. So anyway, we'll let you get going. Thanks for coming on again. Great to have you and uh, look forward to having you again. Thanks, man. Have a good one. Thank you so much. Hey, you too. All right, you guys, we got to cut it off there. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can follow him at Kofinas on Twitter, hiddenforces.io. He's on every podcast thing out there. Go give it a listen. Uh, like Again, only pay for uh, a podcast service I subscribe to. So have a great weekend. We'll be back next week. Got another great interview coming up. You won't want to miss it. 
You're listening to the Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.